0: Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth, or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today we will explore two musical moments, one from a listener and one chosen by Alex, from the Concerto for Four Harpsichords in A minor. going to read an excerpt from an unusual source today, not a music historian or musician, but from Douglas Adams. Mm. This is from a little section of one of his lesser known, but still very stylish Douglas Adams style, uh, witty type novels called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. It's, I mean, I haven't read it in a while, but I, I remember it being kind of Kind of melancholy, but also hilarious. Pretty typical of Adam's work. In this section, the character is stunned to find himself listening intently to Vivaldi on a record player. Not meaning to, he's suddenly finding layers and meaning in the music. The quote, He waited again to see what he would do next, and suddenly found to his surprise that he was already doing it, and it was this. He was listening to the music. A bewildered look crept slowly across his face as he realized he had never done this before. He had heard it many, many times and thought that it made a very pleasant noise. Indeed, he found that it made a pleasant background against which to discuss the concert season, but it had never occurred before to him that there was anything actually to listen to. He sat thunderstruck by the interplay of melody and counterpoint which suddenly stood revealed to him with a clarity that owed nothing to the dust-ridden surface of the record or the 14-year-old stylus. But with this revelation came an almost immediate sense of disappointment, which confused him all the more. Music suddenly revealed to him what was oddly unfulfilling. It was as if his capacity to understand music had suddenly increased up to and far beyond the music's ability to satisfy it, all in one dramatic moment. He strained to listen for what was missing, and felt that the music was like a flightless bird that didn't even know what capacity it had lost. It walked very well, but it walked where it should soar. It walked where it should swoop. It walked where it should climb and bank and dive. It walked where it should thrill with the giddiness of flight. It never even looked up. He looked up. After a while, he became aware that all he was doing was simply staring stupidly at the ceiling. He shook his head and discovered that the perception had faded, leaving him feeling slightly sick and dizzy. It had not vanished entirely, but had dropped deep inside him, deeper than he could reach. The music continued. It was an agreeable enough assortment of pleasant sounds in the background, but it no longer stirred him. When I first read this section of this book, I mean, of course, that latched on right away to the um, experience of listening to music. That part of the narration, of course, really resonated with me. But I love the way that Douglas Adams explains the sort of ineffable quality of listening to music, how sometimes you just can't explain why, but, you're, but you feel the harmonies and the sonorities in a deeper way than you can explain. And it's like you're seeing the architecture of the heavens for a second. But it's only fleeting and then it goes away and it's kind of telling to me that he uses the music of vivaldi for this because i would say that if we're thinking of vivaldi as a composer i think his music is very elegant put together very cleanly and clearly and it affords that sort of bright picture that someone like Bach as we've said before sometimes the music is a little more veiled with Bach a little more complex a little harder to see through maybe when you do it's a little more rewarding but I think with Vivaldi it's like almost a shortcut to musical bliss you know it's just so plainly beautiful i've always been a little confused why bach loved vivaldi's music so much <laughs> but he definitely did he copied so many yeah. things and learned from those scores and made all of those arrangements including this one and transcriptions including this one right we should say and be clear that this piece this piece by Bach is actually a transcription and a fairly straight one at that of a piece by Vivaldi for violins. Now this is moved to harpsichords. Four harpsichords in this concerto, the most of any concerto by Bach. Somehow it's unsurprising that Bach would dare to try something like this over the top, I guess. But I yeah. did I did <laughs> notice, Alex, that when you search one of the free score libraries, the IMSLP library, that this piece is under like an automatically generated category for instrumentation. And that instrumentation is for four harpsichords, strings, continuo. And I thought, oh, what else? What else is in there? Nothing, this is just the one, there's one thing in this category. So it's just uh, automatically generated. But there's no, yeah. so there's nothing else like this, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so we are saying is somebody else needs to write a piece that uses four harpsichords and, and two violins, viola, and continuo, bass, and just populate this category a little further. <laughs> if they have, then it's under copyright and can't be put here, maybe. But they should, because then you could have a concert where you could play this and that with the same players. Press And looking at what Bach does to, to solve the problem that he gave himself which is to transcribe this piece by Vivaldi for harpsichords, he plays to the strength of the harpsichords themselves and what kind of instrument they are and what they can do. It's great to listen to the companion video of this, which you can get to from the Netherlands Bach Society video performance of this piece, and in that they interview the four harpsichordists on this. and. Each of them has their own take on why this piece is interesting to them. Overall, you get a sense of those harpsichordists being just really jazzed about playing this because it's such a unique piece. I mean, how often do you get to do this? We just said, there isn't really anything else like it. play between keyboard players is always exciting to watch whenever you have more than one and here you have four playing the same instrument it's really something special and it's also it's also not just overpowering because there's this aspect of the harpsichord being a little bit of a softer instrument when there's one and when there is mm-hmm. one as there often is in baroque orchestras it plays a background role and that's that's what we call the continuo and it's kind of more felt as a prickly background texture, really, than than the notes themselves. So to have four of them playing parts that are often interlocking and halfway doubling, but also halfway independent, is just really interesting against a a lighter string accompaniment. The balance is, is unlike anything else. So why Vivaldi, why did Bach love Vivaldi so much? It is a good question. But I think it kind of comes back to my theory about Vivaldi and the clarity of expression that his music carries. I think that was appealing to Bach. It makes sense based on who Bach was as a composer and theologian. Bach is very clear. I mean, I'm making these comparisons saying Bach music is more complex and veiled, it is, but it's still always very clear what Bach is getting at with his text painting if it's a piece of music that has text, which of course this one doesn't. But sometimes these abstract ones with no text are a little more fun because he gets to just kind of reign free. think it really is that that math that puzzle side of Bach that makes him love Vivaldi if you look at Vivaldi you can it's like looking at an open clock mechanism it's like you can see all the gears ticking like it's just it's all very plain it's all right there and I think Bach as someone who loved to take a the proverbial clock apart when it comes to music of course that appealed to him I just it's so puzzling like I, I just think like did he deep down know that his music was like a little bit more polished than than this composer that he admired so much that, did he see it as just a an aspect of him that he wanted to improve upon but i think i, 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 I think i think that's just reading too much into it the the fact is it could just be that he loved vivaldi for the energy and he he was never going to be exactly the same in his style it's almost like bach took from vivaldi as a sort of teacher what he needed from him as we tend to do with our various mentors As we learn more in our lives, you know, we're not always going to do this things the same way as they did. And each one we're going to take something different from. And we're not even going to always necessarily like the exact artistic thing that they did. But we will still learn it. Yeah. And I mean, Vivaldi was Italian. So we know that Bach admired a lot of Italian styles and brought those to his cantatas, for example. Famously, he used a lot of Italian style recitatives and the Italian aria style. So it makes sense that it was also just like in vogue, and it's something that in music that made you, um, as a German, would make you seem more cultured, as Germany wasn't the cultural center at this time. That might be a better or more succinct answer. The answer is that Bach was trying to be in style with the Italian style with someone like Vivaldi. It might be. But it was all filtered through his his own more theological lens in Germany. Yeah, but also it kind of comes down to if we're going to speculate about personal reasons, it's going to come down to the apparent complete lack of ego in Bach and his music. And that was kind of special to him as a person, even though it was a product of the time of the art of the time. So, so maybe that's why he didn't, he didn't see Vivaldi as a lesser composer, even though nowadays I think a lot of people would say that about Vivaldi versus Bach,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but, but I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that's part of it. Vivaldi was also like, this, this is, neither here nor there but just as a funny aside Vivaldi was known for being like really egotistical (laughs) so Mm. it's kind of funny doesn't have anything to do with it because it wouldn't have mattered but I mean like Vivaldi just just being that pure sort of perfect on its own music is I think pretty amazing I mean going on in in that Douglas Adams book he talks about how the character is like diving deep into why did he feel this way about the music and he's reading books about it and stuff and he gets to a point where the book is describing how the human mind is capable of understanding unbelievable complexities about nature just naturally like just intuitively just like for example catching a ball that somebody throws at you you don't have to understand the physics the turbulence the friction of the air the direction the the velocity all this stuff you don't have to do calculations you you do them intuitively you don't you don't have to understand them and you catch the ball and his point was that listening to something is like that you don't have to understand the workings of the music theory for it to move you and sometimes there will be a moment which is what our podcast is all about there will be a moment that moves you deeply and you can try as we do which is the whole point of our podcast you can try to explain it but sometimes it's unexplainable Mm mm-hmm There are two moments that I'd love to talk about a little bit in detail. One was picked by our listener, Will, and it comes right near the end of the last movement. A sort of dancing, but also like pretty intensely, almost violent (laughs) movement of music here. At the end, the sonority, especially the timbre or color of the instruments is what stuck out to our listener, Will, here. talks about the notes that vault forward from the violins and suddenly grind on a gritty, dissonant, percussive texture. So what we're about to hear is just that, the violins, doubled by harpsichord, and then suddenly lower sounds, cello, also doubled by harpsichord. Now I should note that what you just heard there, when you heard the violins, it was both violins doubled with or a I guess you could say, with all four harpsichords, right? Like, they're all playing the exact same line with the right hand. And then, when you hear the cello come in, it's also all four harpsichords playing with the left hand, the low notes with the cello. That's what's giving it its real edge there. There's a bass as well, right? Yeah. My orchestration teacher, Bruce Broughton, would say that that bass line, those harpsichords are giving that bass line some hair. He would say, give <laughs> give it hair. But um, he usually meant that when we were talking about the double basses in a big orchestra, like adding the basses to give something some real grit. And that's what he meant by that. But in this case, right. it applies to the four harpsichords. Right. Do you think he was talking about the bow hair, or is it just more of a uh, abstract, <laughs> I d- sort of, sort of say I didn't even really. He must m- mean bows, right? I didn't make that connection. I think he was just. Ma- I think he was just using a figure of speech to mean like grit. Yeah, that reminds me of another great orchestra experience that I had with an orchestra conductor, um, Larry Livingston from USC, that I did a summer orchestra with, and he would say. And he would say this for, for the strings or the winds or the percussion, but whenever he just wanted loud sounds, he would say like, and now you need to gather in large swaths of air from Iowa. He <laughs> always used the phrase <laughs> Iowa. And it was great. And he would also, he had a way with telling the different sections how to do things, but, but using like the wrong terminology on purpose. Like he would tell the clarinets, he's like, clarinets, okay, play on the frog. As in, that's like a string bow thing. And then he would tell tell the strings, you know, about like breathing techniques and stuff. And Mm -hmm. he was making a really good point here, which was that we're all using all these different techniques and all our different instruments to make the same music. You should understand what the strings are doing with their bows, because it matters. Because your attack as a clarinetist, how you start your note, needs to match with what the violins are doing so it was actually really clever and I mean of course a fantastic orchestra conductor like him he has a lot of years of experience to figure these kind of things out but I mean it's it really makes the orchestra a true like a true ensemble those kinds of concerns are absolutely coming up with these Netherlands box society musicians here for this because they have to make all kinds of decisions like that especially in an unusual instrumentation like this they have to figure out how to work together yeah and listening to that moment Will's moment there it's just very clear that these instrumentalists have rehearsed this so cleanly that those harpsichord lines, even though there's four of them playing together with the violins and then together with the cello and bass, it's just so absolutely polished sounding. I mean, that's this music sounds like this era, right? It sounds like how the instruments look. Everything is polished, everything's artistic, everything is just elegant. Yeah, it's, it's also got sort of a mechanical quality to it. Anachronistically, it sounds to me a little bit like some sort of gears, like a computerized powered thing chugging along. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Bach would have been a computer programmer if he lived today. <laughs> yeah. Along with, of course, being an excellent musician. <laughs> and something that our listener Will was interested in was trying to find out more about what makes this style of music sound like some other genres of music. Maybe this strange instrumentation is a gateway to thinking more openly about that. And I was thinking that... I've always thought that Baroque violin, like 16th notes, really fast stuff. I've always thought that a good way to describe what the violins are doing is like, because it sounds just like how fast notes are being played on an electric guitar, like think like Eddie Van Halen style. And so I, I always like to call that shredding. So when it, when violins sound like this, I always think that they're like really shredding. It's a particular tone, quality of the violin, and we. That's like you know that's like a rock guitar term. So it's not a technical. It's definitely not a technical violin term. Let's put it that way. But I think it totally works, and I think it works you know, even better for the violin, thing. like the actual slashing motion that you're doing like, okay. yeah it's, it's it's your arm it's that movement of your arm and the pushing against the, the strings you know yeah and there's interesting scholarship on baroque bows and on baroque violins that shed some light on how some of this stuff was even possible i mean some of the most complicated violin music that bach wrote like some of the partita stuff like the chacun that we talked about in our first episode of this of this second season, it really can sound kind of ugly on a modern instrument, even when played by somebody who's really good. But if you play it on a period instrument with period bow, it totally makes sense all of a sudden because now you can play these double and triple stops all like very smoothly with this really loose bow mm. with loose hair. And when you need to tighten it up, you just press with your thumb. Whereas modern bows don't have that technology and they're just always tighter so there's there's differences like that that make the period instruments just like completely sing the right way yeah it, i mean i would never even fast like mozart or haydn i would it's just it, that's not shredding but like right vivaldi vivaldi's that, that vivaldi shreds like the violin stuff the fast violin stuff that's shredding Mm-hmm And then my moment is just something I can't, I can't leave this episode alone without talking about because it's just, it's totally a moment of Bach. And that is near the end of the second movement, the slow movement. We have this wonderful arpeggio stuff happening with the harpsichord. So it doesn't actually sound slow because these arpeggios are fast. You're hearing lots of fast, skippy notes happening in all the harpsichord parts. And then it finally settles down into one luxurious rolled chord, the dominant chord feeling like it needs to resolve. Then we get a final statement of this marching theme, which is how the movement started, into this glorious trill. And then it segues into the third movement. So that glorious trill, I mean, it's just, it sounds amazing because there are two different notes trilling, and depending on what version of the score you look at, there's three. And that's that, like, wobbling note. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the technique of the trill. That's an ornamentation. And it just, it gives it a lot of crunchy character because the bass note of a D sharp is clashing with the trill above. A trill that starts on C, but you really have to start it on the D above it. So it's a D natural, so it doesn't, it doesn't match. It's like, it's a, it's a legal dissonance, but as far as Baroque dissonances go, it's one of the most out there ones you could ever have, but it's legal in this context, cross-relation. Yeah, and specifically one built on a diminished chord. So it's already sounding dissonant because of its place in this harmonic structure. And the reason it's legal is because the one that is raised, the D sharp, is going to go up to E. And the one that is not raised, the D natural, is just a higher neighbor of the C natural, which is going down. So they're both going down. Right. So it ultimately ends on the dominant chord it's it still doesn't you know hit the resolution again until the third movement starts just the uh, the majesty and the sort of lavishness of that of those harpsichords landing on that on that chord after the arpeggios it's just it's just fantastic And then that trill, it's just amazing. And the harpsichord usually naturally gets this job in the Baroque orchestra of doing these really drawn out flourishes, because as we know from other harpsichord stuff on this podcast, if you just play a chord on the harpsichord of like eight notes together, exactly together, it will sound like one thunk, but... If you roll that chord a little bit, you will get the effect of a much greater sonority and vibrant tone. And so if you multiply that by 4, it's, it's there's nothing else like it. And now here is Will's Moment from the last movement of the Concerto in A minor for 4 harpsichords. And here is Alex's moment from the ending of the second movement of the concerto in A minor for four harpsichords. If these introductions to two musical moments have inspired you to hear the rest of the concerto, Please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of it by the Netherlands Box Society. To hear our new episodes, find us on your podcast app. We are on all of them, as far as we know. And also, if you get in touch with us via social media within the next week or so, or our email application from our website, and if you specifically say that it's okay with us, we would love to share your question if you have one on air at next week's bachtoberfest which is our season closer if you asked a question already then you might be hearing from me in the next couple days asking you if it's okay to read that question on air next week yeah thank you listeners to anyone who has submitted any questions or comments we love to hear those things and we're excited for next week for bachtoberfest it will be the final episode of this season then we will return for season three. Until next time, enjoy those moments.